Hi there. So I'm taking January off from regular uploads of the show, but I wanted to do a little bit of fun cross promotion by uploading an episode of my other podcast, Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. For those who aren't familiar, it's actually my first podcast, and it's one that I did as part of my volunteer work with the Friends of Merrill, a group dedicated to spreading awareness of the Merrill Collection, which is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of speculative fiction materials, with over 80,000 titles that anybody at all can come in and have a look at, including a huge amount of absolute treasures of -of out-of-print books and special editions and all those kinds of things that you might not be able to get access to any other way. I say it's something I did because I need to step down from it on account of just having lots of other things that I'm doing, including this podcast, my novel, and the magazine that I will be kickstartering in February, New Edge Sword and Sorcery, the preparation for, you know, is why I am taking January off from regular uploads. But I wanted to share with you here an episode of Unknown Worlds, my last one, a special one that dropped long after the second season dropped back in the summer and spring. Uh, it just went up in December. It's an interview about climate fiction with Kim Stanley Robinson. Now, I'm proud of every episode I did, but it felt like a really big deal to get to talk to Stan. And on top of that, Climate fiction is a subject very dear to my heart. It's something I could see myself writing for the next novel that I cover in the podcast. We'll see what happens. But yes, Climate Fiction with Kim Stanley Robinson is an interview I'm deeply proud of, so I want to share it here with the hopes that you will go and check out the previous episodes of the podcast or even the Merrill Collection itself. If you don't live in Toronto, don't worry. They have a digital archive. I'm going to link to all this stuff in the show notes of this episode. And yeah, okay, here you go. Here's the episode. Welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. This is a very special episode where the subject is climate fiction, and the guest is author Kim Stanley Robinson. Robinson is an American science fiction author who has had a long and distinguished career producing some 22 novels and many short stories. Nature, ecological sustainability, economic and social justice, and climate change and global warming are all recurring themes across many of his works. In 2020, Robinson's latest book, The Ministry for the Future, came out. Set in the near future, the novel follows a subsidiary body established under the Paris Agreement whose mission is to act as an advocate for the world's future generations of citizens as if their rights are as valid as the present generations. While they pursue various ambitious projects, the effects of climate change are determined to be the most consequential. From this work alone, it shouldn't be hard to see why we would invite Kim Stanley Robinson onto the show to discuss climate fiction, which is literature that deals with climate change and global warming. It's not necessarily speculative in nature, but in my personal reading experience, it pretty much always is, whether it takes place in the now or the near future, and it frequently involves sort of dystopian or utopian themes, depending on how rosy or not the outlook of the book is. Though the term cli-fi was coined by freelance news reporter and climate activist Dan Bloom around 2007 or 8, 
works which could be considered climate fiction long predate that, such as Robinson's own Pacific Edge, a novel exploring a more ecologically-minded America centered on a small town in California. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Stan about climate fiction. And here we are with Stan. Hello. Hi, Oliver. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. It really is. All right. Uh, I'd like to know, what is the earliest encounter that you can remember that you had with a work of climate fiction? And what impact did it have on you? Maybe it was J.G. Ballard. The Drowned World, The Wind from Nowhere, The Burning World, The Crystal World. This is a quartet of early Ballard where he destroyed the world systematically by various different means, but there was often climate. I mean, in the crystal world, everything was crystallizing, which is not quite a climate catastrophe, but it was the most symbolical and maybe the best of the four. But the drowned world is very um, striking. Um, essentially, climate change by way of global warming, London drowned and, and kind of jungly, hot, underwater, people motorboating about in amongst the skyscrapers covered with jungle foliage and being Ballard, the characters are kind of enjoying the freedom from civilization, the chance to break out psychically into some new adventure state. Um, it all was mysterious until Ballard finally wrote Empire of the Sun and it revealed that he spent World War II in a Japanese civilian concentration camp after which it was like the piece of the puzzle that explained all these early catastrophe novels and his strange affect state. So that's my first climate fiction. I mean, I wrote Venice Drown, not as an homage, but kind of remembering the drowned world. I wrote that probably in 1980. So it definitely struck me. And then, you know, there was that movement, ecology, Earth Day, science fiction, new wave science fiction, the late 60s, early 70s was concerned with the biosphere in ways that were new to science fiction and even to world culture. That was really a hot moment, so to speak, for uh, science fiction. Okay. And just off the dome there, what do you feel would be some of the absolute heights of the genre? What are the, some of the best works of climate fiction you would direct people towards and why? It's a good question because I still don't think of it as even a subgenre, although I confess it is one, but I'm always thinking that science fiction always did things like this, that it was about humanity on a planet, either this planet or some other planet. When the name climate fiction was first proposed, I was irritated. I thought to myself, every time science fiction gets interesting, people try to stick another name on it. It's not okay. In the 80s, they started calling it cyberpunk because it was mm -hmm. relevant. Um, um, and it goes on and on like that. It's science fiction. When you stick a story in the future and you talk about what the future might bring, that's science fiction. To put another name on it is maybe a sign of condescension or disdain or a disavowal. Like, oh, you don't want to be admitting that you read about bug-eyed monsters and aliens from space. So yeah. you give it another name. Now... I've had to reconcile to this name climate fiction for a couple reasons, but the main one is this. Science fiction can be divided up into near future and far future, and also middle distance, a little in between. So far future is Star Wars, Star Trek, space opera. 
near future is day after tomorrow, and I've often done that. And then the middle distance, say a century or two off, I've done that even more, and that's my favorite zone. But near future science fiction is extremely important. Stand on Zanzibar, John Brunner, the whole new wave. Essentially, a portrait of the present by shoving it a little and making it metaphorical or surrealistic, pushing things that are already happening just a little bit and calling it, I don't know, it's best not to date it, but five years out, ten years out. Mm -hmm. Well, near future science fiction now has to be climate fiction because the climate change is an overriding consideration. So I've become reconciled to the idea of that name, and it's not necessarily a put down of science fiction, so to speak. It's more a content identification. What near future science fiction is now doing is doing climate because you can't avoid it. If you were to write a novel set five or ten years from now and you didn't have climate change in it as a major factor, well, you'd be doing some kind of fantasy or being irrelevant. Paolo Bacigalupi. He started with climate fiction, and then the water knife is important. It's showing how bad things can get if we don't make an adjustment. And indeed, climate fiction does tend to have a dystopian strand. Things are going to go wrong. And there are coping strategy novels where, okay, climate change hits, and then human beings have to show solidarity, like uh, Rebecca Solnit, A Paradise Built in Hell that when things go bad, some groups will actually respond well and will get a return to the commons and to mutual aid and to people being nice to each other, non-alienated from each other, more communal. So I'm thinking The Arrest by Jonathan Lethem or The Children's Bible by Lydia Millet. There are some others. Cory Doctorow is often really good on near futures going strange accommodations having to be made. Sometimes that's climate, sometimes that's more sociological for Corey. That's who comes to my mind first. Yeah. So the next thing I want to ask you, if I may, was when releasing a book, people often define for themselves a goal or a victory condition. You know, how many copies sold, connecting with a specific audience, just finishing the damn thing. With climate change, it feels like the concept of a goal or victory condition could be different. What do you feel would be a victory condition for a climate fiction novel? What were your personal thoughts of this book will succeed if X happens with Pacific Edge, Aurora, or Ministry most recently? I don't think in that way. Uh, so it's hard to answer. I'm constantly being taken by surprise by what happens when my books go out in the world. And sometimes there has seemed an inverse relationship between how much I care for my novels once they're done and how well they do in the world, unfortunately. Some of my favorite have gone out and not done well, let's put it that way. But I think that science fiction is there to help people build their cognitive mapping system, their internal historical GPS, where are we, where are we going, and understand the news better so that it, it's a form of sharpening your ideological lenses Ideology is a necessary cognitive tool for filtering and understanding and ranking in order of importance all of the onrush of information that comes pouring into us every day. Without it, you're in trouble. When you've published science fiction, you're helping people to get a sense of what the future might bring. The future will be less surprising. It will be more comprehensible. So uh, climate fiction being a subset of science fiction is doing the same kind of thing. What you would want is people read your book and then when the next month or years news comes pouring in, 
it makes more sense because the novel has given you a scenario to comprehend it by and to slot information in, in ranks of importance. There are multiple crises happening at once that are interlocked with each other and solving one by itself wouldn't do you any good because the others would still be bearing down and indeed they're interlocked in a way that you can't solve one without solving them all. Well, it makes the problem worse but it's also a matter of cognitive mapping that we can't just focus on the rising temperatures. You can't just focus on more CO2 in the atmosphere. I mean, that is a crucial driver. If you're going to focus on one thing, then CO2 in the atmosphere and decarbonizing fast, that's a good choice. But there are so many other things that are implicated in that, but not directly caused by that, that also would need to be solved, such as, I don't know, the failure of political representation worldwide or the habitat crisis or hunger and or viruses. The mass extinction event bearing down has a huge uh, quote climate change or CO2 element in it, but our misuse of habitat are, are not leaving the biosphere alone in enough biomes to allow our wild brothers and sisters to survive here. That's a big part of the problem. And so all of these things intersect. This is also what the novel is made to do, is to bring in everything and write a story about it. Science fiction is there to do that by setting the stories in the future. So then when I write my own, I'm just thinking, they need to have fun. It's a form of entertainment. Education can be really fun, and fun can be very educational. It's not just a public service message, it's also a hilarious five-minute video or whatever. A novel has to be the same. So I'm thinking if people enjoy this novel, then great. And if they learn something about what's coming down and how civilization works right now and how the biosphere is doing, then also great. I don't set benchmarks. That would be, in some cases, devastatingly painful, in some cases, astonishingly gratifying, because I've had a kind of a roller coaster of a career. What do you see as the role of violence in climate fiction? and in climate action. Uh, you mentioned in a talk you gave at Stanford in January of this year, something about the difference between sabotage and violence, and you were surprised there wasn't a lot more sabotage happening. Is that correct? That's kind of correct. I remember that discussion, and indeed it keeps coming up, and it needs to be addressed. My ministry for the future portrays a world in which lots of things are going wrong, and yet the overall tide of history is going well enough that at the end of it, you're thinking, aha, we squeaked through the 21st century without a mass extinction event. And that's the new definition of the utopian novel. If we get through this century without a mass extinction event, if we come to grips with decarbonization and with biosphere loss and get the road to biosphere recovery, to ecological recovery of the planet, which is really our extended body, then that's success. Because we're in such a dangerous point right now that if we continue on various courses that we're on right now in the same trajectories, we will wreck everything and civilization will crash. So violence is going to happen. We are already in a hugely unequal world. The top 1% burns 50% of the carbon. I mean, uh, the figures keep changing, but they are shocking. We are in a gilded age. 40 years of neoliberalism has led us to biosphere collapse and huge inequality amongst humans. As huge as it's ever been, which when you think about certain moments in the past is an astonishing thing to say. And yet it's true. 
It's partly because the wealthy are so much wealthier than ever before, but the poor are still miserably poor, immiserated. Well, people are going to get angry at that. And it's possible to use drones. It's possible to commit violence at a distance. Asymmetrical warfare advances in technology have ironically made it easier for the weak to strike at the strong. And the surveillance state and security forces can't do anything about a drone that comes flying in from the next country and hits you. So a combination of technological progress and intense anger is going to mean that we're going into a violent half century. And I wanted my novel to be realistic. I wanted people to finish that novel thinking, yeah, it could be like that. And yet, think of this, they still got to a good place. So that when we get the barrage of bad news and we get the, the people weeping and punting on first down and saying all is lost and why should we even try, that they're being wrong in that capitulation to the dangers of our time, that there are going to be a lot of bad things happen and we still could get to a good place. That's one point of my novel. Now, mm. violence as what some people call it eco-terrorism, let's not use that term. Let's say asymmetrical warfare, resistance against overwhelming destructive power by any means possible. I've been thinking about effective altruism. And then I just uh, discussed the lathe of heaven recently on a podcast. And in that novel, Le Guin talks about effective dreaming. And I was thinking about effective violence. Now, is there such a thing as effective violence? Is it not always creating more bad than good? Well, it's an open question for sociologists, historians, people thinking about morality, especially, I think, historians. There have been revolutions, and there have been revolutions replaced by entirely different governments, including sometimes democratic governments as opposed to tyrannical governments, etc. But very often, spasms of political violence in world history have created situations worse even than what happened before. It's a mixed picture. So when I wrote in the Ministry of the Future about some cases of effective violence, was that romanticizing violence? Was it wrong historically? So say you have a chapter, it's from the point of view of a guy who's seen his whole family die and has declared himself one of the children of Kali. He's going to go out and he's going to kill oil executives or anybody that is pushing fossil fuels on the world in a way that is now criminal, he's going to take care of himself by killing them. He thinks it's effective violence. But if you're reading it from the outside, could it be the case that he's wrong about that? That executive will be replaced by another one ad infinitum, and that it's the system that needs to be murdered. You're not talking about violence of human against human. You're talking about systemic change, and you could be talking about sabotage. If you go down and you break an oil pipeline, is that even violence? Should the word violence be retained to mean only one human hurting another human? And if you go down and break a pipeline, it isn't even violence. It might be breaking the law, but it's a property law, and it's not the same thing as hurting other humans. It might hurt profits, but profits are a measure of how much damage you've done. Anytime a corporation declares its profits, it means that's how much we've exploited our workers, that's how much we've damaged the planet. It's a perfect rubric for measuring bad things. So a world based on making profit, which is what we're in, is a world on its way to destruction of the biosphere and of civilization. We need a different rubric. And so then we need a different language to talk about that process of change. And 
Andreas Malm is very good on this in How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Swedish philosopher, an important book, much clearer on these issues, and he's the one that's helped me to think this through. To destrand uh, murder from sabotage is a very important thing to do for, say, young idealistic people who don't want to live in a ruined world, and they want to do something because their votes are being suborned. They're voting for politicians who are being bought by lobbyists who are actually legislating against the interests of their voters, their constituencies, and their biosphere. What do we do then? Well, maybe I should break a pipeline, and this is where mom gets interesting. I mean, violence is always kind of seductive in the sense that it's something very quick you can do, not gradual systemic change by any stretch. And with the feeling of the timer running down because of climate change, I think violence becomes more seductive. But you might be moving in the wrong direction. I, I want to be explicit on this. I would say never harm another human being. And if that mm -hmm. causes problems down the line because we are moving so slowly, so be it. Do civil disobedience that is nonviolent. And Bill McKibben is very good on this point. And so is Erica Chenoweth in her book, Why Civil Resistance Works. What they're saying is that it's even more effective that nonviolent civil resistance persuades those onlookers who would be repulsed if you used violence. And then you get solidarity, you get mass movements. You pointed out how Mars colonization is largely irrelevant to humanity at the moment, but the space exploration remains extremely valuable for what it can teach us that may help with managing the one livable planet we already have. I'm curious if there are any particular aspects of space-based scientific research useful for studying and managing Earth which you might highlight for us from your recent research and for any aspiring climate fiction authors who might be listening. Well, sure. For one thing, all of the satellites we've put up there that are surrounding the Earth and looking back at the Earth to study it are giving us amazing amounts of specific data that we couldn't have without that view. There are now satellites that can pinpoint where methane is being released right to the leak in the gas pipeline or to the point source, whatever. It could be a pig habitat. We're raising that many living beings that emit methane, a stockyard or such. You can see that from space. A company called Planet is photographing the entire surface of the Earth on a daily basis, showing daily changes. Those can show us where problems are appearing, where deforestation is happening, where floods have what they've done and where the next dangers might be. It's famous that the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer was discovered by planetary scientists because of an analogous situation on Venus. So in other words, by studying the atmosphere of Venus, we made discoveries that allowed us to realize that we were burning up the ozone layer that protects us here on Earth. And again, I think this was the Montreal Protocol where we decided to stop emitting hexo chlorofluorocarbons, which are intense uh, ozone burners as well as a greenhouse gas. So in other words, space science is an earth science. This is a NASA slogan. I think it's right. And even going to the moon and setting up bases on the moon, it's a particularly good spot to look back at the earth um, because it reminds us, by the way, that we're on this tiny little blue dot, but also you can get data that you couldn't from low earth orbit. Oh, that's good. I like it. And people are excited by it. It's a technological achievement that's interesting. It's not a huge carbon burn compared to daily life. Even though it involves a whole lot of high-tech materials, they're in minute quantities compared to ordinary human civilization. So I like all of it. What I don't like is the fantasy that putting humans on the moon or Mars is at all important. 
for human survival if all humans on Earth were to die, which is already a fantasy situation. Second fantasy, that then 5,000 people on Mars would make any difference and would not go extinct in some miserable way. So it's bad science fiction, all of the talk of Mars right now, thoughtless, unaware of our current moment, and a fantasy escape. It ranges from sticking your head in the sand to playing games with your toys while your house is burning down. This is um, silly stuff. I was at first little famous because I wrote the Mars Trilogy. So I am one of the more prominent living Martians in our time. And so it, it's important for me to be explaining that that was a novel, and it was written in the early 90s. It was partly a realist novel, partly a metaphor, as all science fiction is. And I believe it's a good novel, but it's not a plan. It's not a blueprint. It was written in the conditions of, say, 1990, and now 30 years later we have a much different situation where going to Mars just isn't on the table until we get into a good relationship with this biosphere here because this is the only one that will ever sustain us. We are co-evolved with it. There's no assurance whatsoever that you could live on Mars. For one thing, the surface is poisonous in a way that we didn't know when I wrote my trilogy. Perchlorates in the soil at levels that would kill you. And the soil is not just dust, it's fines. It's much finer than dust particles, and you can't not be breathing it and living in it. So, A, you're poisoned. B, galactic cosmic rays. C, 37 percent gravity to Earth, we have no idea what that would do over the long haul. You have no idea if fetal development would work on Mars. The whole thing might as well be Middle Earth. How has writing climate fiction, especially something as easily interpreted as a manual or blueprint for resolving climate change as ministry, affected yeah. your relationship to your readers in particular and the public at large? If I remember correctly, this did lead to certain things like getting, you know, sort of a full access pass to uh, COP26, you know, and things like that. Well, um, the Ministry for the Future came out just over two years ago, and I can honestly say that it's blown up my life and it's been a completely different experience to any of my previous novels. And that has been so shocking. I mean, I've been perpetually surprised, but you can't be surprised for two years straight. I'm just perpetually surprised by what happened. Here's my interpretation of this. It's not my best novel. I like it. There's not many novels that are like it in providing a, a kind of a plan, a blueprint, a description of things going well over the next 30 years. And what it does is it fills an empty niche in people's desires. In our cultural uh, ecology, people want that story. And I've seen this now so often that I can say this with real assurance, because I've seen it with my own eyes in interactions with people. People are hungry for that story. They want to think it can come out all right in the next 30 years. Well, where do you go for that story? You can get it in part if you parse the IPCC reports or various scientific reports, the National Academy of Sciences uh, proceedings. They'll present exit ramps or routes to avoiding a mass extinction event in various kinds of quantitative or even summary terms, like an abstract. But if you wanted the story told as a story, well, many people end up at the Ministry for the Future. And I'll also say this, a lot of people think they are already working in a ministry for the future. And when they read the book, they recognize themselves and their own work. And people like fiction to represent themselves and their own work. 
occasionally. So the combination of all these things has been such that I've just been trying to represent the book, stay out of the way of the book, don't publish sequels, don't publish something <laughs> different, make sure that that book continues to have the impact that it's having. God, just trying to imagine Ministry of the Future 2 is uh, <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> Yikes. That, that, would be, that would be bad. Well, if, if I may come back to that January talk, uh, there's another element I'd like to riff off of. Britt Ray, Planetary fellow, uh, Health Fellow at Stanford, tweeted the following when reporting on your talk there. Says he regrets ever mentioning Bitcoin slash crypto in Ministry for the Future, bracket, calls it a fraudulent scam in bracket, and spoke about how we are in a very different structure of feeling on the poly crisis now than when he wrote it in 2019. Now, this made me think about how in recent years, other science fiction writers have been commenting, I think, more than usual on the difficulty of keeping up with writing about the present by writing about the future. I'm thinking of William Gibson's heavy rewrite of his latest novel, Agency, because of Trump winning in 2016, uh, as one example. I'm curious how you are feeling about this issue of keeping up. Could it almost make sense to experiment with the climate fiction novel as a living document, You know, given that its subject matter seems especially fast-moving and volatile? Or at the end of the day, is it just about making peace with the fact that it'll be what it is when it gets put to paper and 10 more things will change by the time you're promoting it? Yeah, it's the latter. You can't keep up. With the best will in the world, things are moving too fast. I wrote Ministry in 2019, and by the time it came out, the pandemic had struck, everything had changed. Soon, Trump was out of office, which didn't look likely in 2019, and the pandemic taught us things about climate change itself, about society's ability to react fast when it felt threatened. When individuals felt like they might die, then suddenly all of society was galvanized and made quick changes. These were lessons that I didn't know when I wrote Ministry. So it was out of date before it even came out, which is not unusual with near future science fiction. So you can't worry about that too much. And it's better to think of it the way you said. It's a document from that moment, and then you try again, and then you try again. One prominent example for me that is, I think, quite positive is I was sort of postulating this carbon coin on some minimal clues in the literature, a paper by Delton Chan, some other thoughts about it. And I had my Mary Murphy rallying the central banks of the world to back essentially green or quantitative easing or decarbonizing quantitative easing so that the first creation of new money out of the central banks would be spent on green work first and then just enter the general economy. So like a lot of leftists, I've begun to regard Keynesianism as a leftism, government-driven. And I'm happy to be reading in the leftist press in the New Left Review recently, someone writing a, a survey of leftism in the 21st century that indeed Keynesianism is not just an omission of defeat, but the first blow against neoliberalism. So I wrote all that. And then it turns out there's a network for greening the financial system that existed all along. It, at this point, it's like 90 of the biggest central banks on the planet. And the theorists get together in this study group to try to work on green quantitative easing. So it already existed in the world. And this is good news. It's not like I would think, oh, dear, I didn't predict something or, oh, dear, I was ignorant when I wrote my novel and I had the plot of my novel describing something that already existed as coming into being. Big deal. It's great that this already exists, and it's validating that I was on the right line there because 
I thought I was just tracing a few theorists and my own notions of what might work. In fact, I had independently rediscovered something that true financial scholars and theorists have already been trying to work up. This is good news. So we need to seize all good news that we get these days because there's an awful lot of bad news. And as for writing, I still think you can make a valid attempt to say, I'm sticking this story in the near future because I think these things will happen next and it's a good story to tell. That might best be the way that one does contemporary realism now. In other words, if you were to set a novel in 2022, so you write it as if it's a domestic realism, as I call it. Sometimes people call it literary fiction, which is a stupid name for a stupid subgenre. Um, but say you're doing domestic realism, then you write 2022. By the time it gets processed, published, and out there, it's historical fiction. So what do you do if you want to write about now? It's like skeet shooting with a shotgun. You aim a little bit ahead, you shoot ahead, and by the time the book's out there, it's completely contemporary. I think that's a very healthy attitude too, to take uh, what you said about validation. You know, maybe, I think maybe there's a, a bit of ego on each foot aside if the goal is to be the one who predicts correctly rather than tells a compelling, motivating tale. That is an egotism because if you have made a correct prediction, it's by accident. In other words, you didn't succeed at anything. It's just that if you were to count out the 10 things that you got wrong, but you focus on the one thing that you got right, you are not that good a predictor. You're no different than any other human. A very bad track record on predicting the future. Yeah, and it's so tempting for readers to want to put that on science fiction authors as being, oh, no, you were a much better predictor than you thought. I mean, Gibson flows back to mind again when I think about people often love to frame him as a uh, prophet. And he says, yeah, okay, I kind of predicted cyberspace, internet, whatever, because I was walking past an arcade and I got an idea. But if you go to Neuromancer, it's set 300 years in the future or whatever, nobody has cell phones. <laughs> no, um, I mean, Gibson is um, superb on all these things. He's got a good judgment, good balance. One of his most famous novels is a great self-description, uh, pattern recognition. He's good at pattern recognition and he's a good novelist. So no, I have a, a lot of affection for Gibson personally and I admire the attitude that he has towards the whole phenomenon. He's a very balanced and sane for a science fiction writer. <laughs> I think that's a good assessment. So I imagine your research for ministry was never really over until the final draft was submitted for printing, though correct me if I'm wrong. In general, you write pretty weighty books that require a lot of research. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit of your craft, you know, a little bit about what your process is with research. Sure. And there are no tricks involved. I read a lot. I don't look at visual media. I think information intake is much greater by reading, at least for me. I'm a reader. I'm not a watcher. It's amazing what in the visual media I have not seen, you know, ranging from Casablanca to any of the great TV series. I've never seen any of them, not even a minute. So I read my movies in the reviews literature or whatever. So, okay, research, I'm always doing it. It's just part of reading daily. You can get for free Nature Briefing, Society for Environmental Journalists, Bloomberg Green. They'll send you a, a morning, weekday email with links and with short articles. Then also Science News, which has existed now for 50 years or so, and now it comes every two weeks. I like to read it in print rather than online. I'm sure you could do both. So science journalism, 
and just a constant intake. What's going on? And that's suggestive to any science fiction writer. And then if I get interested in the topic, I start reading the prominent books on it, and oftentimes by journalists or um, nonfiction writers that everybody will know. Michael Lewis is very, very good. The Big Short, Liar's Poker, uh, John Lanchester over in England, very good. So people can explain things at that level. And then I go to the scientists themselves. And this was true even when I was completely unknown science fiction writer. A scientist will always tell you about their field if you give them an opening. The real problem is, can you get them to shut up about it, <laughs> which is often difficult. So I do that all the time. And what I do is I research on a need to know basis. I'll write a scene in ministry. I'll look at it. It's not good. What would make that scene better would be me knowing X, Y, and Z. I go out and find out about X, Y, and Z. I rewrite the scene. So the iterative process of research and revision is crucial. And then you still miss a lot and you have to not freak out about that, you cannot be comprehensive. This I call the Coleridge problem. Coleridge was going to write an epic poem, he told Wordsworth, his friend. I'm going to write an epic poem just like your prelude, but first I have to know everything about mineralogy and ancient history and Greek and Sumerian. And of course he never wrote his epic poem. He was never prepared. So you can't let that stop you. And I guess the last thing I would say about this is it's not really research. I'm reading for fun. This stuff is interesting. Contemporary science is finding out the most remarkable things. You can do CRISPR, you can change your genes. Well, my lord, there's a science fiction story for you. The moral dilemmas and the implications of that we're grappling with and stories would help there. And it goes on and on like that. So I'm having fun and truthfully for ministry, I wrote it in nine months. I was of course researching at every moment of that right to the last page. but. Mostly the previous 30 years had prepped me for it. Many a time I didn't have to learn new things. I had to organize my thoughts about stuff that I had already written about before in New York 2140 or in the Green Earth Trilogy or all the way back to the Mars Trilogy. Terraforming Mars is a kind of geoengineering of Earth analog. So my whole career had made me prepped. And indeed, I thought of ministry as, let's just put all our cards on the table this time. A lot of short chapters, let's be a little crazy. And to go back to something else that you said, yes, I wish I had never mentioned the word blockchain. People, when they hear blockchain, they hear Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a scam. And all these cryptocurrencies are just like tulips in the 17th century. It's financial speculation of the worst kind. So mm -hmm. blockchain is also an extremely cumbersome form of cryptography. And it has a carbon burn aspect to it. It has this so-called trustless thing. Well, it's not money. Money is a system of mutual trust. So when you say trustless money, it's like you're saying black-white. It does not function as such. We trust the U.S. dollar. And every other currency on earth is benchmarked to the U.S. dollar as being the world imperial coin. And beyond that, if there isn't trust, then it becomes just a speculative bubble. People are misunderstanding what money is. And also people at Google have told me there's way better coding systems than blockchain. You could easily create a hash with like a 10 second stamp. In other words, in the future, they will regard that as a historical term. And they'll be talking about digital money. They'll be talking about cryptography, but they won't be talking about blockchain. So that was my mistake. You know, if, if I could go back to 2019, rewrite it, I would take it out. But, you know, <laughs> mistakes happen. The Coleridge thing you mentioned uh, amused me. It reminds me of that 
old acting anecdote about sort of Lawrence of Olivier working on a film with Dustin Hoffman back in the 60s, where both characters were supposed to be very tired in the scene they were about to do. Dustin Hoffman believed very heavily in methodness. So he'd been up for three days or something wacky and coming. And Lawrence Olivier was like, Have you, what, about, what about acting? <laughs> you know? And to me, I, I think about research and writing and you think about fantasy authors uh, or aspiring authors doing, trying to do all the world building before they put down a single scene. But what about writing? You know, what about instead of trying to figure out every aspect of science under all creation before you tell your story? Yes, yes. And I'm glad you said that because world building is a mistake. It's a category error out of writing workshops, particularly science fiction writing workshops. It should be called setting. And amongst the elements of a story, here's the elements that matter, plot and characters. And then you've got things like theme, style, setting, ambiance, uh, which tense you put it in, all these workshop terms. Setting, I love setting. It is evocative. It can raise to the level of a minor character, maybe. But it's really the human characters that people care about in fiction. And so world building is a kind of a category error on the part of people thinking, I love The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien because Middle Earth is so well developed and there's elvish languages and there's a history going back 2,000 years. No. You love The Lord of the Rings because of Frodo and because of Aragorn and Gandalf. And then the setting is like, oh my gosh, I was really there. And you know, that's valuable. And I've done that myself. My Mars trilogy, people talk about 10 pages of the continuous description of rocks on Mars. That isn't quite true. <laughs> <laughs> but the feeling of overdoseness that you have been drenched in Mars. Well, the same thing with Middle Earth. World building is a derivative effect. And it's just like what you were suggesting. You shouldn't do it first and then think of a story that goes there. This is backwards and wrong. I'm curious, what is your approach to grounding all these facts and huge world-girdling issues, particularly in something like climate change with its wicked problems and so forth, as we've discussed, in people, in character? But I feel like that must be very important because you don't want people to get lost trying to just keep track of a bunch of disparate facts or be overwhelmed by nothing but big motions. In that mm -hmm. Le Guin interview, I remember you mentioning uh, her novel Always Coming Home and how something that you found maybe a little difficult was that it wasn't as grounded in character, maybe as some other of her stories. And so maybe the ideas kind of float off a little bit. Well, that's right. And I would only say this now that Le Guin is dead. I would be terrified to say it with her alive. If she heard it, she'd be really mad at me. But I don't <laughs> think Always Coming Home works because of indeed this, as someone said to me, it's like the Dune Encyclopedia without Dune. You have the world building. You have that post-civilization Native American imitation culture in huge detail. The flute music, the anthropological thing. It's based on her father's book, Handbook of the California Indians, in structure. And it does the same thing as her father's book, but for a future culture. Well, the story's lost. The characters aren't important. It's an example of what I'm talking about here. It's world building over plot and character. For me... Okay, I had a global novel. It had to have low protagonicity. It had to have <laughs> lots of voices. Fine. I still needed a spine. It's like a, a very scattered body. I needed a spine. I needed a central story. So I had Mary and Frank and their story, which is strange and transgressive. It disturbed me to think about their relationship. I had to think about Stockholm Syndrome and Lima Syndrome, which is the opposite of both of those operating at once, of resentment and revenge against someone that scared you and so you scare them back for the rest of their life. I mean, 
that was a complicated relationship that I found interesting that was at the heart of the story and all the rest of the saving ourselves from climate change needed to be hung from that central story that if it worked it would be how does Mary deal with this guy who kidnapped her and scared the shit out of her and then she has him under her thumb in that she can visit him in jail and then leave and he's stuck in jail. Well, it was perpetually interesting to write those scenes because I didn't know what would happen in them. I would get out of the way and see what happened when they talked to each other. It was an interesting process and this is what novelists live for. You've set the situation up right and then your imagination can run with it and we know from our dreams that we have tremendously strong imaginations at all times. So that's where I think is important. Now as for the feelings that you mentioned, and I think I can, I'll, I'll be, try to be a little more brief, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one of the affect states of our time. We're all post-traumatic. That's being human. At a certain age, you've had some traumas. And then who gets the stress disorder and why? And also the people who don't get it, how have they coped with their trauma and gone on being a, how can I say it, a functioning human? And as happy as you can be, given the things that have happened and that are going to happen. That's interesting to explore. And again, that comes down to Marion Frank. She's had a trauma but survived it. He had a trauma that wrecked his life. And then the other affect states, climate dread. How do you deal with climate dread? ADHD, what is this attack of an inability to pay attention? The onslaught of information and you don't have the cognitive mapping, you don't have an ideology. Does that cause ADD? The people are just simply confused and stunned by over-information or by climate dread. And even autism spectrum, which is more of a topic in Red Moon, my previous novel, but I'm very interested in it. What does that mean? We have these diagnostic names, but what does it mean to live it and to feel it? That's where the novel can come in. And that's what I'm interested in trying. And, you know, I want to write more novels. It's just I don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to do sequels to Ministry for the Future. <laughs> but we're in the world we're in. So at the moment, I'm kind of stalled and pondering, but they, there's no rush. Yeah, I must admit, thinking of your earlier comments uh, about how, you know, near future books that don't at least have climate change somewhere on the margins feel... I don't know, foolish, myopic, whatever. They're just leaving something pretty big out. Maybe the thing of moving forward is simply to not look entirely away, but shift focus, I suppose. I like to hit all the science fiction bases. Like I've done The Other Planet. I've done spaceships. I've done alternative history. I've done the near future, you know, multiple <laughs> times. What's, what's missing that might be interesting? Well, I've never done aliens because I can't quite believe in us understanding the alien. But what about telepathy? Well, maybe I'll do a telepathy novel. The world might be climate change, but if you had telepathy, you'd have a story that would override all the rest of them. I thought it might be nice for my last question that I asked. Could you please tell us a little bit about your relationship to Judith Merrill? Oh, yes. Thank you for that. I love Judy Merrill. I only met her a few times, but one of them was in Toronto, a dinner just the two of us, before I did a talk at the library. It probably was the 94 one, I'm not sure. She was hilarious, she was wise, she was incredibly well-read and sophisticated creative writer, scholar, critic of science fiction, but also of world literature and culture. It was a a wonderful dinner, and I had read her Mars novel written with Cornbluth, 
Um, maybe it's called Outpost Mars. It was a publisher's title, but in any case, a beautiful novel that she marked with her own thinking and import. I mean, who knows how collaborations go, but it struck me as a Judy Merrill novel. And I had read all of her collections that shaped what science fiction could be, her annual anthology. Somebody gave me the complete paperback set of these. So a lovely evening. And at the end of it, over at the event itself, I read from the third story in my Kathmandu, Escape from Kathmandu, The True Nature of Shangri-La, that might be the name of it. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but in any case, it was a comedy and I read it aloud from the text and I'm not particularly a, a funny person in person as a human being. I like to laugh, but I don't usually make people laugh. But my character Fred's, my narrator, was just slaying that audience. And I don't know who was more surprised, them or me. But it's by far one of the great readings of my life that same evening. So I remember it distinctly. And my surprise that Fred's was striking people funny was, of course, surprise will usually mark your memory. It was a great evening. And Meryl, I take it she was quite the book collector, that the spaced out library was immense. And that's great that it all got assembled, that it got renamed after her, very important, I think. And it's important to hold to her memory that science fiction can be the best literature going. That was what she was saying. And this was in the 50s and early 60s. And of course, J.G. Ballard was a huge figure in her anthologies. She was saying to the world, if you want to know what's going on, you don't go to literary fiction where people are trying to imitate the modernism of the 1920s and failing quite badly. You go to science fiction. So she was an early blast of the trumpet that something crucial was going on in world literature, and it was called science fiction. So I loved her for that, and I always will. Well, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I started with, uh, I always get the number slightly wrong. It's either five or 10,000 original uh, texts that she donated. And currently the collection has over 80,000 in wow. its uh, stacks and remains an incredible research for writers, readers, and enjoyers of the history of the genre across the board, where you're, of course, always welcome back if you ever want to come and talk again. Well, this has been absolutely marvelous, unless there's something else you'd like to tell us about what you have coming up uh, in terms of your next work. No, let's stick with Judy. Yeah, I like it too. Thank you so much. I, I have nothing coming up. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. Thank you so much, Stan. Yeah. All right. Thank you. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.